Welcome to the Health, Wealth, and Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Hagen, a nutrition coach, entrepreneur, food freedom expert, and forever a recovering disordered eater. I am here to help you own your enoughness, find your very own food freedom, and achieve your health and wellness goals in a way that gives more than it takes. Each week, I will provide you with insight and inspiration surrounding no-nonsense nutrition, mindset, motivation, body image, confidence, and other wellness wisdom. Mike, first and foremost, I want to welcome you to the Health, Wealth, and Wisdom podcast. It is an honor to have you here. So thank you so much for being willing to share your time and your knowledge with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's our pleasure. For everyone listening, Mike is a nutrition coach who helps driven individuals align their nutrition with their personality to achieve epic results. Mike has been on every end of the spectrum when it comes to dieting, ashamed, insecure, overweight, orthorexic, embarrassed to step foot in the gym. And he's come out on the other side to a place of balance, harmony, and good health. Is all of that accurate, Mike? That sounds pretty freaking impressive. It is. It's been quite the journey. Uh, I definitely did not imagine that my life would go in the direction that it did, but I'm fortunate for all of the crazy twists and turns along the way that helped to uh, take me to where I am today. Oh my gosh. I can't wait to dive in and learn more. Now, Mike, we have a question that I always ask guests on the show, and it's to kind of tell us about the person you are behind the coaching status, irregardless of your relationship status. What would your dating profile say? Tell us some things about you that maybe not everyone knows. That's a great question. Uh, so, gosh, I would say that I am I am engaged, so I don't I wouldn't have the dating profile, but I would uh, I would say that I am really more comfortable in like one on one settings than I am in big groups because I'm pretty introverted, um, and oftentimes that can come across as. Uh, People say that I don't talk very much or that I'm very shy. Typically, I like to get to know somebody before I open up. So I'm more of an observer at first and probably has something to do with why I went down the path that I did and and kind of like falling in love with psychology because I love to observe human behavior and uh, kind of like see why we do the things that we do and try and put those pieces together. Um, I am a big fan of enjoyment of life, like travel, see the world, experience new cultures, experience different food. Um, I love to, you know, be outside, um, dance, laugh, play. I'm an athlete. I play sports. So um, I am a big believer in just, uh, you know, trying to be as present as possible and enjoying uh, life while we have it. And, um, you know, I I would say that, uh, yeah, those are, those are probably the things that I would use to describe myself. Um, more of like a cerebral type of person. I love more like deep and intimate conversations, like to be outside, like to play, move my body, um, obviously prioritize fitness and and uh, my health. But I also like a good time, go out, dance, laugh, watch a comedy, go to a stand-up show, something like that. And good music is another thing. So uh, I'm a hip-hop junkie. I love hip-hop and I've been listening to it for I don't know, 30 some years now. So, um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's about it in a nutshell. Mike, you mentioned you like dancing and then hip hop. Have you ever taken a hip hop class? I've never taken a, actually, that's not true. I've never taken a, I've never taken a hip hop dance class. 
the only time that I took a dance class period was for my first wedding. I was previously married and uh, we did like a little couples dance and we did a couple private sessions, but um, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm the best dancer. I definitely have rhythm and I can hold my own. I'm not going to wow anybody on the dance floor, but I'm more of like the underrated kind of, you didn't see that coming, but you know, I kind of have some moves, but not really. (laughs) So uh, that's how I would describe my, my dance ability. I love it. I took a hip hop dance class once at the coercion of some coworkers and I was absolutely terrible, but it was a heck of a good time. It was fun. Yeah, definitely. It's always a good time. I love that you mentioned that you're an introvert because I also classify myself as an introvert. Like I recharge by being alone, love people watching, observing my first degree is in psychology as well. But I think sometimes people might not guess that because what we do can sometimes appear to be very extroverted, like working with clients and podcasting and all the things. So that was a fun fact for me to learn about you. Yeah. I, I find that like anything that gets my adrenaline going, whether that's being in the gym, you know, being out with friends, being on a podcast, when I have to like turn on it, it happens. And I can, you know, I can definitely hold my own in conversations and make small talk, but it does take a lot out of me. And I just learned that about myself. I remember doing a seminar and I had to teach for two days straight. And then I thought I would just go right back into work on Monday. It was like a Saturday, Sunday seminar. And so just constant adrenaline, constantly making conversation and being on and teaching and having people come up to me after the seminar and asking all these questions. So it was like 48 hours of being on. And I remember going in on Monday and having like client calls and team calls. And I was just a shell of myself. I like couldn't form sentences. Like my brain was totally mush and it was uh, a learning opportunity to, to remind myself that it does take a lot out of me when I have to be on. So I need to build in some extra downtime and recovery time. Yes, I'm learning that also. And I, I want to pick your brain for a second. This is not a planned question, but I find that. So my husband is not that way. He does not recharge by being alone. How have you created maybe some healthy boundaries with, you mentioned you're engaged with your partner in terms of like, Hey, I've been on for the last 48 hours. I love you. I want to hang out with you, but like, I need a little, little downtime, a little space. Have you found anything that works well for you? Yeah. So it's nice. We have some like built in habits that we both, and and she's kind of similar in that she likes her downtime as well. Uh, But she also has three kids who are with us half the time. So uh, it's, it's a lot more difficult when, they're here. Uh, so, you know, we try to kind of just work out where, um, like taking walks and, you know, she can take a walk while I stay in, in the house if the kids are here or vice versa. And so we'll just try to plan little things like that. Like, I'm just going to get out for a long walk, get outside, you know, unwind, decompress. Uh, fortunately, we have a sauna as well. So like one of us will, will go into the sauna for a little while. Um, and then just doing things. I also find that things that just like give me joy. So even getting to the gym or playing tennis or just listening to music, uh, or if it's, you know, at the end of the night and we're like, you know, we're both kind of rinsed and we just want to sit on the couch and, you know, watch some mindless TV. And, uh, we don't do that very often, but every once in a while we're like, we just need to put something stupid on and laugh. And like, we'll just find a comedy and, um, you know, something that's doesn't require much brain power, but it'll give us a good laugh. And, Uh, So we just try to find little things like that where we can fit them in. I love that. Yeah. Even if it's just like a small pocket of time, just find something that maybe pours energy back in a little bit, helps you to recharge. Yeah, definitely. 
Mike, now onto our scheduled programming. I have heard you tell your story and it's it's really an amazing story. I would love for you to start at the beginning, you know, wherever you deem the best beginning to be in terms of your dieting history. Where did it start? Because I know it's very different from the relationship with food and fitness you have today. And then perhaps you can tell us how the heck you got from there to here. Can you take us back? Of course. Yeah. So I always start the story with the fact that I did grow up an athlete uh, because it's relevant to my identity and also to my family dynamic because I grew up with two older sisters. uh, So I was the youngest of three. And I remember being pretty young and just always noticing my mom on a diet. And whether that was counting points or, you know, I, you know, I'll, I'll age myself. I'm almost 40. So I remember all of like the low fat options, the, I can't believe it's not butter, the, all the things that we grew up with in, in the eighties and nineties and the low fat fad and then the low carb fad. And she went through all of it. And I just remember that was always a big thing for her. And my oldest sister uh, almost lost her life to anorexia. And my my older sister, the middle, um, she had some severe issues with with body image and her own struggle with with weight and nutrition and diet. And I always just considered myself the lucky one. And I remember we would go out to like family dinners, or you know, we would be it didn't we could be somewhere like Applebee's or whatever, and and like everybody was kind of ordering their like diet friendly things. And I was like, I'll take the cheeseburger and fries and like an extra side of chicken fingers. And I just, I had a a fast metabolism. I was always active. I was always playing sports. And I, and I would always be like, I don't understand why people can't just eat what they want. And like, it's, you don't have to worry about it. And I just, I didn't recognize it at the time, but I, I was just the fort. I thought of myself as the fortunate one that could get away with eating whatever. And to me, I didn't connect the dots that like those choices actually had implications when it came to your relationship with food or your weight or anything. I was just young and naive and could get away with it because I was playing sports all the time. And fast forward, I end up, you know, going to college. I went to University of Maryland, picked up some typical college kids, started drinking a lot. I started eating a lot and I already had like a, a huge appetite. I could always put away a lot of food. And that continued into college, but still I was active. I was playing sports. So I didn't really have any issues with like the freshman 15 or anything like that, but it wasn't until I graduated and I was no longer playing in like any leagues or intramural sports or anything like that. And I was still drinking a lot and eating a lot. And at that point I became very sedentary. And even though I was working, I I started bartending uh, my senior year of college. And then I stayed and was bartending after I graduated as well. But that was it. I was pretty sedentary. I was definitely not taking care of myself. And I I didn't, I just didn't recognize, I didn't connect the dots that like this would have implications because it never had in the past. And I probably gained about 80 pounds in a year. And it felt so rapid and sudden. Like I remember where I was. I remember the moment. I remember being in our little house in Maryland and waking up and going into the bathroom and looking at myself in the mirror and just seeing it for like, I obviously had seen it happen, but I didn't really click until that one morning that I looked in the mirror and I was like, oh my God, who is this person? And it was just like, every time I I tell that, I can like put myself back into that moment and it it gives me goosebumps because it was like this complete lack of identity and no longer 
recognizing myself or connecting with myself and, and actually feeling like I was looking at a stranger. And at that point, all of these swirling thoughts came into my head. And I was afraid of seeing, I had a really close group of friends from high school that we all, and we still talk every day to this day, and we've all stayed very close. And I was afraid to go home and see them. And I just started thinking about all of the comments, like, how did you let this happen? And how did you let yourself go? And and then because I identified so much as an athlete, I started thinking about the fact that like, well, what if I want to go play basketball? I don't I don't even feel like I could step foot on a court anymore. What if I want to go play tennis with my dad? I don't even feel like I, I can step on a court anymore. And it was just this total loss of identity. So my solution was, all right, well, if this weight is preventing me from being myself, then if I get it off as fast as possible, then I can get back to being myself as fast as possible. Um, so that led me down some really poor decisions when it came to weight loss. And I did... I was like the most susceptible like person to sell any like infomercial. I was, I was all bought in. If the, the more extreme it sounded, the better it sounded in my head, like lose 80 pounds in six weeks. And I'm like, yes, that's what I need. Because if, if it's six weeks, then I can get back to being me in six weeks. And um, so I started doing hours of cardio every day. I started uh, meal plans, doing like 1200 calorie meal plans and losing weight very rapidly gaining it back just as fast. And and that led me down a path of about 10 years of chronic dieting and and then basically falling victim to all the things that I had witnessed in my family dynamic that I thought I was fortunate enough to have avoided. And it all came to fruition. And it got really severe. My my relationship with food just kept getting worse and worse. My relationship with my body kept getting worse and worse. I hated the exercise that I was doing. I found no joy in doing hours of cardio every day. And I just thought that that's what I had to do. Um, so the turning point on the exercise side was when I found strength training for the first time and found a local gym privately owned. And uh, the owner was like, you know, he had, we had, there was this orientation. I think I bought like a Groupon and went to this gym. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I was so scared to step foot into that place. I remember like looking in the door in the window and there's like all these fit people in there. I'm like, I don't, I don't belong here. I should turn around and walk away. But fortunately I went in and, and I remember the owner being like, most people think that they have to do a bunch of cardio to lose weight. And the reality is that if you lift weights and you build muscle, you'll look better naked, you'll feel better. And he like was saying all the things that I needed to hear. And I totally bought in and fell in love with strength training. And, and that was like a huge turning point for me, but I still struggle with the nutrition side um, developed orthorexia, was obsessed with clean eating, then found macros, became obsessed with macros. And then I fell into the, if it fits your macros, where I learned that I didn't have to be obsessed with clean eating, but I kind of over-rotated and started eating a bunch of crap food just to fit my macros to prove that I could make progress with like Pop-Tarts and Rice Krispie treats and cereal and all the things. And I, it was so hard for me to find balance I, in my personality is um, I do get very into something when I, when I find something that I'm passionate about, I get, I go all in and I obsess about it and I want to learn everything and I want to master it. I want to be perfect. And I hold myself to a ridiculously high standard. So, um, it was not easy to recognize the disordered behaviors. Uh, my sister that I mentioned, my oldest sister, who's a therapist, she became a, a therapist with, um, and specializes in eating disorder. She was the one that told me that I had orthorexia and uh, I didn't want to hear it. I 
I was like, I'm just trying to better myself and be healthy. And eventually I recognized like I was ruining relationships that were important to me. It definitely drove a wedge in my marriage at the time. And we ended up getting separated and divorced. And that's not the reason, but it definitely didn't help. And uh, I, it was kind of like that moment of, you know, having to hit rock bottom and realizing that I'm, I'm not going out with friends because I'm obsessed with food. I'm driving a wedge in my marriage. I'm, you know, um, you know, hurting relationships with family members that are close to me and, and I'm the common denominator. So I needed to fix myself so that I could fix my relationship with food and exercise in my body. And, um, was able to crawl my way out and, and find, find my path, fortunately. Wow. So you really did. I think you used the word rotate from one, I guess we could say like one end of the spectrum to another, which I think as a former athlete growing up makes a lot of sense to me because that athlete mindset is like, if you're going to do something, go hard, right? Like go hard or go home, as we like to say. So kind of embodying that mindset when it came to nutrition, like I'm going to take whatever I do to the nth degree and I'm going to make sure that I ace it when, when it now I'm sure we would agree that when it comes to health and nutrition, you can't do it perfectly. Like it's a practice that you constantly have to commit to. I have a question, Mike, kind of taking us all the way back to the beginning. So you mentioned you kind of thought you were the lucky one that didn't struggle with these things. And then it sort of manifested like end of college, post-college. Do you think that it was, I mean, obviously I grew up in the nineties too. So I totally get the like heroin chic, Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen, you know, like thin is best. Do you think that your parents influence, I think you said specifically your mom's influence played an equal part in your relationship with food? Maybe it was just masked by like athletics for a while, or do you think there was a different trigger for your struggle with food? Yeah, I think it was different because I remember them being like, like we could eat whatever we wanted. There was no, I think my sisters had, honestly, I think based off of like society and and, and our culture, I think that my sisters definitely had more pressure than I did for sure. Just societal pressure. And, and I don't want to, you know, paint my parents in any type of way because they were incredibly accepting and, and, and just like any parent, they're doing the best that they can with what they know at the time. Um, but I do think that there was absolutely pressure on my sisters to look a certain way. And I think diet culture influenced them heavily. And I don't think that I just don't think that I was aware or like privy to it. I think I was just kind of in my athletic bubble. Uh, because I, you know, I was, I was eating pizza all the time and, you know, hoagies and French fries and burgers. And like, I never thought anything, I didn't think nobody ever said like, you're eating poorly. Nobody ever said like, oh, you should try to eat a vegetable. And like, of course we had stuff like that for dinner where it was like, oh, you know, we'll have some broccoli or Brussels sprouts or whatever. And I was like, yeah, okay. Like I could do without that, but I guess because it's here, I'll, I'll eat it. And I'm, I'm hungry all the time, but like, um, so I don't think that there was that much of an influence from the family dynamic. I definitely observed it and I just didn't understand it. Like it couldn't, it made no sense to me why somebody would restrict themselves. Like when I had to witness my sister going through what she went through, I just remember like my, my like logic brain couldn't connect to why somebody would intentionally starve themselves and end up sick because of it. I'm like, you have control. I couldn't understand it. Like you have control over what you're eating. And I was just so young and naive. Uh, and, and my, my whole thought was like, I just wanted to like scream, like just eat, like shake her, like wake up, just eat. And, and I didn't get it. 
And then when I experienced it, I was like, okay, now, now that I'm going through it and I, and I see the habits and, you know, how complicated and nuanced it is, it, it now makes sense. It's not just, it's not as simple as just eat. I wish it were that simple uh, because I went through my own period of deprivation and extreme restriction, not to the extent that she did, but it, it did start to make sense. But I don't think that, uh, I don't think that the like parental influence or the diet culture influence really hit me as hard as it did my sisters. Which makes sense. I'm glad that you pointed that out. There's just maybe a stronger influence on, you know, the female end of the spectrum, not exclusively, of course, but I think in terms of diet culture, sometimes that that's the case. And I get what you're saying in terms of like, until you've been in similar shoes, it's hard to understand completely. I remember kind of wanting to do the same thing with my younger brother who was struggling with addiction and substance use growing up. I was like, why are you doing this? Like, why can't you just stop? And then later on experiencing my own struggle with anorexia, it was the same thing. And I know loved ones were wanting to scream at my face, but you know, until you're in that situation, struggling with like the disease that is addiction and eating disorders, you just really can't comprehend all of that. Yeah, completely. So Mike, you mentioned that you were the best person to sell to, like the allure of all or nothing quick fix was so very tempting. You were like, sign me up yesterday. That's something that I feel is very, very relatable. I mean, we all want to get to where we want to be ultimately in the shortest amount of time. How did you like graduate from that method of thinking? Is it something you still struggle with? Did you ultimately have to accept like, okay, I've tried this a dozen times and now it's not worked any of those times. Was it just like failing so many times until you couldn't avoid facing the facts anymore? Or was there something else that kind of helped you unsubscribe from all or nothing thinking? Yeah, I would say there was a few pivotal moments for me. I think uh, a big turning point was, well, well, the this, the continual failure of doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And then finally recognizing, like taking a step back and being like, I, I consider myself to be intelligent. Like I should be able to figure this out. Uh, and just really getting more like, all right, let's, let's identify the patterns. Like what do all of these things have in common? And it's like, oh, they're all super restrictive and they're promising fast results and you've never been able to sustain it. So like maybe there's something to that. Um, a huge pivotal point for me was hiring a real qualified coach who actually could explain to me why those things weren't working and what to do instead. Um, but I, I would say the bigger piece for me was actually being able to understand it through studying psychology and neurotransmitters and how our brain works and then recognizing the you know dopamine hit that we get when we hear the the quick fix promise and what that does in our brain and why we're so attracted to those things. And, um, you know, I always say like, there's certain things that we, we kind of hear, like you have to overcome these things. Like you have to overcome fear or you have to overcome imposter syndrome, or you have to overcome the comparison trap. And my philosophy is you're not overcoming those things. You are learning how to live with them. You're learning how to dance with them. You're learning how to have a relationship with those things because they're not going away. Fear's not going away. Comparison's not going away. Your all or nothing thinking is probably not going away. It is wired into us. When we think about this big ambitious goal that we have, we get a dopamine release. And that is the pleasure-seeking neurotransmitter that takes us into action and it drives us to do something. So when you think about 
losing 30 pounds in six weeks, that sounds really appealing. It's almost impossible to not get a dopamine hit thinking about it and picturing how you're going to look and the amazing results you're going to have. So it's not that you can eliminate this natural chemical process. It's having a relationship with it and having awareness around it and then having a toolbox of, okay, now there's something that goes off in my head that says, oh, I know what this feeling is. I know what it's trying to do for me. And I know I get to have the last say. So now we like build this relationship with it. It's the same thing with uncomfortable emotions or negative emotions. And um, I think another big thing for me was going through therapy and, and recognizing that suppressing negative feelings is never going to be effective or trying to ignore them or trying to push them away. It's how do we accept and acknowledge and get really curious about those difficult emotions and have a relationship with them and then recognize that we don't have to act on them. We can just let them sit and do their thing and communicate to us. And then we get to have the last say in how we want to respond. So it was really that once I understood what was happening and I had a coach who could explain to me the patterns of those other programs that I had tried and why they were ineffective, understanding what was happening in my brain and my body, and then building the relationship with those things instead of being like, I'm not going to be an all or nothing person anymore. I'm going to completely push that away. It's like, no, it's okay that I have that natural tendency. I'm going to build a toolbox and and frameworks and ways to handle it and navigate that where I can just accept that this is part of my nature, but I get to have the last say because now I can spot when it's happening and I can identify when it's happening and I can do what is in my best long-term interest. I don't have to act on that impulse or that urge. I can just sit with it. I can listen to it. I can acknowledge it. I can put my arm around it and be like, hey, I know you. We've we've been friends for a long time, but here's what I'm going to do instead. And then I can make the action or take the, you know, make the decision that best aligns with what I want for my future self. I agree with that 100%. I always like to talk about how I am definitely an all or nothing thinker. My brain loves extremes and over romanticizing progress. And now that I know that about myself, therapy was also a game changer for me. I often like to say that it used to be the only voice that I would hear, like the loudest voice. It was so overwhelming. Of course, I'm going to go all or nothing thinking. And now it's like the teeniest, tiniest, quiet whisper that's still there. Like my brain is still like, oh, that extreme option. Yeah, that that looks good to me. But it's not the only voice or the loudest voice. And oftentimes I'm able just to kind of think about it like white noise. Yeah, exactly. It's like being able to recognize it. And then there's there's multiple other people sitting at the table that we can listen to and uh, learning how to navigate that and which decision is going to best align with what you ultimately want to achieve. Yes. I want to take us in a slightly different direction, Mike, because earlier you mentioned you had kind of found some of these nutrition camps or nutrition philosophies along the way, and you may be like hyper fixated on them and obsessed over them one of which was macronutrients. How have you arrived at a place where you can utilize macronutrient awareness, but not be obsessed with it? Because I find a lot of clients that I work with, but also people in general who have been conditioned by diet culture, it's very easy to believe that we have to find the one right way. And maybe that's calorie counting or intermittent fasting or macronutrient, you know, whatever. But then we kind of become overly reliant on that thing. And if we're not doing the thing perfectly, it feels like everything's going to crumble. How do you take like a more moderate approach to macronutrients with your clients? Yeah, it definitely took a while to arrive. Um, I, and the one thing that I recognized was that 
the like tracking macros or stepping on a scale or anything like these are just tools. They're, they can be used or abused, but they are not the issue. Like there's nothing inherently wrong with macros. There's nothing inherently wrong with a scale. It's just an inanimate object. It's, you know, measuring your relationship with gravity in a moment, but yet we have the relationship with that tool. And, and like any tool, it can be used or abused. And so, you know, I could take a hammer and drive in a nail and that's really effective, or I can take a hammer and hit myself on the head, which is really ineffective. Like the way that you use the tool is really the the context that's important to focus on. Uh, because a lot of times people will push the, they'll be like, well, like macros are disordered. Well, it's not inherently disordered. It's your relationship with that tool. And, and for some people that can be a trigger stepping on the scale can be a trigger. Uh, and just like any relationship, you have a relationship with macros, you have a relationship with food, you have a relationship with the scale. Sometimes to repair the relationship, you do need to take a break. Um, just like if a romantic relationship, sometimes distance is, is necessary. Sometimes space is required to then come back and be like, okay, now that we've had this time to ourselves, now we can come back and, and heal the relationship and work on the foundation. So that might be necessary. But my relationship with macros was driven by my all or nothing thinking that was leading the way that I approached nutrition. So I was very susceptible to becoming obsessive and, and to stressing out about macros and trying to do it perfectly because I thought that I had to be perfect. I had this standard for myself that was you either get an A plus or you get an F. And if you miss a certain macro by one gram, then that's an F. And what I recognized was that it was taking away my quality of life and I would blame macros. So my initial thought process was macros are the problem, except because I didn't focus on my all or nothing thinking, my perfectionist tendencies, the way that I was setting myself up for failure, it was never going to get better until I did the work internally that allowed me to live in the gray and figure out what that looked like for me. Uh, unfortunately, it was done out of necessity. It was like, if I want to have a life, if I want to be social, if I want to have relationships, if I want to, you know, do the things that bring me joy. And I also want to be healthy and fit. I have to figure out a way to make these things coexist. And it just became abundantly clear through the, you know, there's only so many times that you can tell your friends that you're sick and not feeling well because you, you want to stay home and track your macros perfectly, that it, something doesn't go off in your brain. Like this isn't quite healthy. And uh, I stopped going on like vacations, which I, I love to travel. I stopped going out. I stopped, you know, doing the things that bring me joy. I would skip out on family events. I'm like, okay, let me assess what are the things that I value the most in my life? It's family, it's relationships, it's, you know, connection. And I'm putting all of these things on hold so that I can track my macros. Like this isn't adding up. So it really was through necessity to develop a more balanced approach. And, you know, I think it also helps um, sometimes the like, logical thought process can help the emotional relationship with something like the logical thought process of macros being imperfect. Like knowing once I learned that there's user entries on something like my fitness pal and nutrition labels have like a 20% margin of error and all of these things, like you actually cannot be perfect. So then in my head, I'm like, well, even if I'm tracking it to the gram, 
I'm still not perfect. So great. Perfection is already off the table. So sometimes that like logic brain can help the emotional relationship. I was like, well, now I don't have to have a, a relationship that's rooted in perfection because it's not even possible. It's, it's completely off the table. Um, so I, I started to recognize what balance looked like for me and how I could still incorporate something like food awareness through tracking macros. And I did have to take a break from it until I came back to it. And um, with clients, it's, it's very similar. It's helping them find what that looks like. And every individual is different. I can say that even for our clients that track macros, uh, we never have somebody just tracking straight through like seven days a week, every meal. Uh, we always build in some kind of a, a break uh, just for mental sanity, a physical break from it. And just to help them recognize, like, we're, we're not even going to let you try to be perfect because we're taking that off the table from day one. And then there is that like, oh, my God, well, I have to kind of give up control. But, you know, when we frame it into what do you want as your as your long term goal, the things that you value, I'm pretty sure that's not tracking every piece of food that goes into your mouth for the rest of your life. So we're already working to the thing towards the thing that you ultimately desire. Um, but it does take work. A relationship with food takes work and it takes time and it takes patience and we learn and we fail and then we regroup and we go at it again. And, you know, uh, having that, having those, those moments where it feels like a struggle. Um, there's a great concept that a, a colleague of mine said, where it was like, if you knew that it was going to take you like 10 tries before you develop that healthy relationship, how quickly would you get through those nine failures? Like, if you knew that you were going to struggle with macros for, you know, nine different attempts, you're going to keep coming at it and it's going to be hard. You're going to try it again and try it again and try it again. But the 10th time is where you find that harmony and that balance and you have a beautiful relationship with food and tracking and all the things like, wouldn't you be really excited about those failures? You'd look at them so differently. You wouldn't berate yourself. You wouldn't feel guilty. You wouldn't feel, sh you would just be like, okay, this is great. Another step closer to where I want to be, another learning opportunity. And um, that really resonated with me because I used to view all of those previous failures as inadequacies. And now I'm like, but that all led me to where I am today. And I couldn't have learned what I learned if I didn't go through those failures. So I look at that as whatever it is I'm trying to achieve. I just tell myself I'm always one failure. Like every failure is another step closer to getting to where I want to be. I think that's a helpful reframe. I actually was talking with the client this morning. We were trying to kind of dive deep into her goal and whether she really wanted fat loss or she was pursuing fat loss because she thought she should or because other people have suggested it to her. And she was just mentioning that she really wants it, but she's afraid to pursue it because she's going to fail again. And so, like you mentioned, failure just kind of stands in our way as this barrier of being like this bad, scary, moral failing thing. Like, oh gosh, I couldn't possibly survive another failure. When in reality, if we think about it ruling out things that don't work for us or helping us to make tiny tweaks that eventually lead us to the ultimate place where we want to rest in a confident relationship with food and a healthy body, it's a little bit different to think of failure that way, for sure. It's like, if imagine if you knew for sure that like the seventh relationship you got in was going to be the love of your life and that was the one that was going to last forever, then you'd probably go through those six other relationships with a lot of confidence. Like, Hey, it's okay that the relationship didn't work out. I, because you have that certainty, obviously we can't predict how long it's going to take, but the concept is completely on point because every failure tells you something that you can gather from it, that you can use to adjust that 
it's just more information to use for the next attempt and the next attempt. And um, as long as you don't quit, you're always going to be uh, one step closer after each failure. I love that. Mike, this is kind of like a, a broad question, but if you look at your journey or perhaps your the, the journeys that your clients are on, are there any big mindset shifts that you feel like you had to make or they have to make when going from that crash dieting mentality, like the next diet is going to be the answer for me. I just haven't found the right thing yet to like a sustainable relationship with food. I need to create some healthy habits that I know are going to work for me long-term. I know there's a lot of people who are aware that they're stuck in the crash dieting phase and they want the sustainable thing but they're just so continually like drawn back to the crash dieting. And you mentioned, you know, there's like that dopamine hit. Yes. It sounds great. Like there's a lore there. There's appeal. What were maybe, or what was the biggest mindset shift that you had to make in order to kind of leave that behind? Yeah. There's a few different directions that I could go here, but the one that's sticking out most in my mind is the concept of an infinite game. And I really had to embrace the fact that there's no finish line. There's no shot clock. There's no timeline. Like this is truly an infinite game. And if the goal of the game is to be able to keep playing the game, then why are we rushing? What, like, why does it matter if it takes a year? Who cares? Why do we put these arbitrary? And that was what I kept doing. It was arbitrary number, arbitrary timeline. And that is really difficult to be successful because Time doesn't care about your goals. <laughs> Life doesn't care about your arbitrary number. There is going to be random stuff that comes up. There are going to be curveballs that get thrown. There are going to be things that you think, even when you look at your schedule and you're like, okay, this is the time frame that I have the perfectly aligned schedule. How frequently does that actually play out that way? It's, it's very rare, almost never. So accepting that, what is my goal with this? Is it to do this in a in a 30-day timeline or is it to do this for the rest of my life? And once I recognize that shift of I can actually relax, I can chill because I've got the rest of my life and it's a never-ending process. There is no finish line. Like the goal is to just get better at playing the game, meaning that I can scale the first mountain and reflect and be like, man, that was a really cool experience. Look at this goal that I just achieved. And then I look up and there's another mountain to scale and that's rewarding. It's, it's like, we just keep improving and it's a never ending process. Like I find learning is that way. The more that I learn, the more that I realize I don't know. And that's really exciting to me. I'm like, man, I can't imagine how much more I'm going to know in the next 10 years. And then 10 years after that, and hopefully however long I live, like I I will just keep learning and I'll just keep getting better. So Playing the infinite game of there's no finish line, there's no timeline, there's there's no I have to be this by this date. Like it doesn't matter. These are all arbitrary that we're we're placing on ourselves, we're putting unnecessary pressure on ourselves, and then we're doing things out of character because of those arbitrary standards. Like I would never have knowing what I know now, thinking back, like I wouldn't have done hours of cardio every day. I wouldn't have done 1,200 calories a day. If I can't do it forever, why am I doing it? And so that mindset shift, you start building the foundation, which is what wins in the end. Like you start building the habits, you start, you know, working on your mindset, you work on your relationship with food, you recognize that those setbacks and failures are not a big deal. Like you can zoom out. And a lot of times, like this past weekend was a perfect example over the holiday weekend, 
I drank more than I had intended to. I ate more than I intended to. And then I can just take a step back and I'm like, let me zoom out. Let's look at like, okay, three days in the grand scheme of the next 50 years. How important is that? Not very. And it just puts everything in perspective. It gives you a little bit of peace of mind. Now, that's not an excuse to then say like, all right, well, I'm not going to go to the gym this week. I'm not going to eat well this week because eh, I've got the rest of my life to do it. So there is a, a balance act with that. You still, but it's the way that I look at it is if I just keep solidifying the foundation of habits that I'm trying to build that will serve me for the rest of my life, then the actions become very apparent and clear. And there's a high level of certainty. If I can keep solidifying the foundation of daily movement, of trying to build muscle, of eating quality nutrition, of staying hydrated, of prioritizing stress management, prioritizing sleep, you know, doing the things that I know make me feel and perform my best. And I just keep working on like little tiny micro improvements over time. There's no rush. There's no deadline. It's just, I'm going to keep brick by brick, trying to solidify that foundation. And then, yeah, as I have my foundation solidified, of course, I can take short-term, you know what, I'm going to see what I'm capable of for the next 90 days and maybe push to get a little bit leaner than I normally do. But it's not a huge deviation from the norm because you have this perspective of I'm doing this forever. So, all right, now that I've got the foundation and the mindset of forever, I can pursue a short-term goal that's maybe it's just Hey, I want to see what I'm capable of. I want to see if I can, you know, increase my deadlift by 50 pounds. I want to see if I can, you know, get super lean for a short period of time, but it's not, I'm not putting this unnecessary pressure on myself to force those things to happen, you know, and it's more about the, the long game. And I would say that that mindset shift has changed everything for me and, and something that we really try to instill in our clients. I am obsessed with that because I think I had to go through the same process. I didn't know that it had a name. So infinite game. I really like that. It's essentially the exact opposite of destination addiction, which was me, right? Like I remember graduating from college and being like, that's it. What the heck? I didn't enjoy any of that process. Like I just wanted to get to the end. And it was also, you know, coinciding with my probably most prominent eating disorder behaviors, but I just constantly like, what's next? Let me get to that finish line. Let me finally get there and then life will be better or I'll be better, whatever it is. And so the infinite game definitely makes you pull back and like look more bird's eye view, like what actually matters here. So with that being said, Mike, do you recommend avoiding goal weights and goal timelines? Like, do you think there's any benefit to that? Like, I want to see how far I can get in... Uh, X amount of weeks or months or like whatever. I'm not against parameters, um, but I am against like strict. I have to be this weight by this date. Number one, the scale is largely the exact number is largely out of your control. Um, We can do certain things to kind of manipulate the scale, but like where it actually lands it's largely out of your control. So because like we we had an example recently with a client who had this like number just stuck in her mind. And when, when she would talk about the number, it was like, there was some emotional attachment to it. And uh, at the end of the day, it was like a high school number and that, you know, there was some connection there. And when we really like dug into what was important to her, it was more about body composition. Like the number really 
at the end, it didn't, didn't mean all that much. She just had attached to it and couldn't let go, but she had gained like 10 pounds of muscle. And we're like, if we were to take you to that number, we'd have to get rid of all of that muscle that you worked really hard for. Are you willing to do that? And she's like, absolutely not. I love the muscle that I have. I love how I look with muscle. I, I, I want to build more muscle. And we're like, okay, well, the number is kind of irrelevant then. Uh, so there's sometimes that we attach to something for, you know, we, we were that it was the weight that we were at a certain age or a certain point in time. And so much has changed. You've gone through so many different seasons and phases of life that uh, the number is largely irrelevant. So I am, I don't mind setting the target and having something that we're working towards to like, all right, it's more, instead of a bullseye, it's more of like a general vicinity. It's more like, let's, we know this kind of area that we want to be in, but I also really like to get to the bottom of like, what does that represent? Because the number is, is not relevant when you, when you start to peel back some of the layers and you start to ask questions about why, like, why, why is that number meaningful? What did, what would that do for you? Then you start to get to the real desire, which is like, well, I want to feel good in my clothes. And this is the number that will allow me to maybe, but maybe not. Um, you know, I, I really want to be confident when I look in the mirror. Well, the number definitely won't do that. Like we could change body composition and you could literally the scale could stay the same and you could feel more confident than you ever have in the mirror. Um, you know, I think this is the number that will help me feel my best. That's definitely not true. <laughs> we, we have to start to tease like what's really important. And then, okay, now we know like, yeah, it's okay. We've got this target. There's this like 20 pound goal, but it's really not about the 20 pounds. It's more about how you feel. It's about how you look. It's about how your clothes fit. Um, you know, you want to be confident. You want to be strong. You want to have muscle. Like we, we get to the, to the actual stuff that matters. And, and usually there's stuff even deeper than that, which is I want to set a good example for my kids. I, I want to be able to play with my grandkids. I want to be, you know, capable and live a long and healthy life. Like, okay, now those are, are even more meaningful than the other stuff, but uh, so like getting to the root of what it actually means, at least we have this like general vicinity. And then when it comes to a timeline, I think that you have to know the individual, um, certain people actually do really well knowing like, I I'm going to be a little, like, let's say it's, it's a dieting phase or a fat loss phase. Some people do really well knowing that, all right, we're, we're going to do this for like eight weeks or 12 weeks or whatever it is. And this is the time and I'm going to really focus. I'm going to, I'm going to get it done. And then, and then that's it. Um, some people, you know, kind of struggle with the timeline because they do put a lot of undue pressure on themselves. And they're like, all right, well, I only have, well, I have to be absolutely perfect. There's no margin for error. And, and then they can get themselves into trouble. So I think knowing the individual is super important, knowing their personality, knowing their tendencies. Um, I think that it can be useful in certain contexts to at least have some kind of a frame, but it, I like to think of it more as guardrails, more of a general vicinity that we're working towards and not being so strict with the, the date and the, and the number and, and really just leaving no room for life or randomness to happen. I'm glad you said that because I think it's so nuanced and like you said, individual specific. I think the individuals who do better, at least in my experience, who do better with a timeline are approaching it more flexibly. Like, oh, hey, I understand that if I'm a couple pounds off, like life isn't ruined, the sky isn't falling, like I'm just going to celebrate the progress that I've made. Whereas perhaps there's other mindsets where a timeline wouldn't be helpful because like you mentioned, they have 
an unexpected illness pop up and then they feel like the whole fat loss phase has been destroyed or, you know, ruined. So I definitely think we need to be cautious about just blankly prescribing timelines and goal weights because for a lot of people, it may not be healthy or helpful. Yeah. And I I have like, I'm getting married in like six weeks. So I'm going to try to make progress with my body composition for nobody else other than myself. Like my fiance doesn't care. She's happy with how I look. She doesn't care what I'm doing. Um, but it's just for me, like, I want to, you know, feel good. I want to look good. And, um, just to see if I can push a little bit before that day. Previously, I would have been like super obsessed and overly restrictive. I would have gone to the extreme. I would have, it would have been unhealthy and disordered if I had done this 10 years ago. Um, today I'm just very relaxed about it. It's like, okay, I know I have this important date that's coming up and I know I'm going to do the best that I can and whatever it looks like. I don't have a number in mind. I don't have a target. I'm like, I don't need to lose any amount. Like even if I don't make any progress, it's just, I have a different perspective so I can go with that mindset of I'm going to do the best I can wherever I land, I land and I'm going to be happy no matter what. So it really speaks to the fact that it's about like the mindset we have more so than about the actual outcomes that we produce or don't produce perhaps. It's always about where you place your attention. Like one of the best life skills is just recognizing that you have frame control. Like we talked about reframing earlier, like frame control is within your control. You control the frame, you control your perception. Uh, you have choices with how you view certain things. We had a whole conversation with a client recently who was talking about like, she's really struggling on the weekends. And she's like the the epitome, like the classic example of a client who's crushes it every week and then just unravels every weekend. It's just starting back at square one every Monday. And it's like, why do I keep doing this? And it's like, well, well let's a- ask that question. Why do you keep doing it? She's like, well, I feel like I make so many sacrifices all the time that the weekend just feels like even more sacrifices. And it's like, well, what sacrifices are you making? It's like, well, I'm not drinking on the week during the week. I'm not, I'm not eating. Like I'm not going out to eat during the week. I'm not whatever. And it's like, you're choosing to view those as sacrifices. That's a perception. That's the frame that you are choosing. You have the ability and you also have the decision to make. If you want to view those things differently, you have frame control. You can view not drinking on the week as not a sacrifice, but something that you do to support your goals. That's something that makes you feel better that more effectively during the week. You can view not dining out as a you know health supporting goal. Um, it's just you can view it as a sacrifice or you could view it as something that you're doing to support the things that you desire, the things that you say you want. And frame control is like one of the greatest gifts that we can give to ourselves because we do have control over our perceptions and the perceptions will lead to our, you know, the way that we perceive something will lead to our beliefs. The beliefs will lead to our thoughts. Our thoughts will lead to our actions. And then it's like this self-fulfilling prophecy. So as she's viewing it as a sacrifice, then it becomes a sacrifice. And because it's a sacrifice, she's like, oh, I'm already doing so much and sacrificing so much. I'm just going to give in. And I don't want to sacrifice anymore. So I'm just going to drink a bunch and eat a bunch on the weekend and then feel like crap and start the cycle all over again. Once you change the frame, you change your perception, you change your beliefs, you change your thoughts and you change your actions. It is the one thing that we have a lot of control over where we place our attention, how we perceive certain things that can completely change the outcomes that you get. 
I like that frame perception because essentially it kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation where the tool itself is completely neutral and it's how we engage with it that can make it positive or negative. And it's the same way, right? For one person choosing not to drink might be extremely positive, right? Like maybe they're living a sober life. Whereas for someone else, it may be like, oh, I can't drink. Like this is terrible. But the act of not drinking neutral. It's just kind of the emphasis that we place on it or the, the reference. Exactly. So cool. Mike, this has been a, such a cool conversation. Thank you for your time, your expertise. Can you tell everybody listening where they can find you online, maybe learn more from you? I know you have a great podcast. What do you have going on? Where can people connect? Yeah, I appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, so best place to connect with me on social would be Instagram. My handle is at coach underscore or Mike underscore Milner. And then my podcast is called Mind Over Macros. It is on any podcast platform. And um, that's typically my favorite place to uh, just chat and get all of the crazy thoughts out of my head, which is why I started the podcast. It was like my first form of therapy before real therapy. It was like, I got all these things in my head and I just want to get them out. And uh, that was how the podcast began. And then somehow people started listening. And now here we are like four years later. So Mind Over Macros. And you can put so much more context in a podcast episode. I got frustrated with like all the disclaimers you'd have to put on an Instagram post, you know, because one piece of advice never applies to everybody. And I was like, man, we need a longer form here. So podcasting definitely helps with that. Totally agree. We'll drop all those things in the show notes below, all the links. Make sure to connect with Mike. And thank you again for being here. We appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Health wealth, and wisdom podcast. If you like what you heard today, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe, and then head on over to nutritioncoachingwithnicole.com where you can sign up for my weekly emails where I send out my favorite tips, tricks, advice, and support every single Monday morning to help you kick your week off right. Thanks for listening. Until next time.